Hi, you're listening to Impact, Dialogos, a podcast on Brazilian contemporary politics, populism and conspiracy theory. I am Katerina Hadzikidi and I'm your host. In this episode, I speak with Lilia Moritz-Vartz. Lilia Moritz-Vartz is senior professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Sao Paulo, USP, and visiting professor at Princeton University, where she was previously global scholar. She has published many books and received several literary awards, among them the Jabuti, which she received seven times, and the National Library Award. Lily has held fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation and the John Carter Brown Library, and has been a visiting professor at Oxford, Leiden and Brown Universities, Tinker Professor at Columbia University and a member of the Harvard Brazilian Office. She received the Comenda do Merito Científico in 2010 and is a member of the American Committee of Human Rights Watch. She writes regularly in Brazilian newspapers such as Folha de São Paulo, Estado de São Paulo, Globo e Nexo, for which she has written a column since 2016. Since 2015, she has been assistant curator for histories at the São Paulo Museum for Art, MASP. In this episode of Impact, Dialogos, Lily will speak about her work on authoritarianism, the history of pandemics in Brazil, and the concept of minoritized majorities. In her recent book, Sobre o Autoritarismo Brasileiro, which we could translate into English as On Brazilian Authoritarianism, Lily argues that we need to look for the roots of Brazilian authoritarianism in the country's recent and more distant history. She told me that the book is structured around two main ideas. The first one is that it is not possible to understand contemporary Brazil without knowing the country's history and the ways in which this past finds its way into the present. The second idea that guides the book is an attempt to contextualize the surprise many felt at Jair Bolsonaro's election in 2018. Lots of people reacted talking about surprises. What a surprise Brazil elected such a conservative leader. And in the book, I try to explain that that's not a surprise at all, that Brazil was created and formed in very authoritarian basis. Like Brazil was the last country to abolish the slave system in May 1888, after United States, after Cuba, and after Puerto Rico. On the top of it, Brazil received almost half of the African population that had to leave the continent. Brazil has this very profound and perverse legacy coming from the slave system. I challenge people to understand how the slave system tried to naturalize hierarchical positions and also how the slave system is based in a very violent idea. We can say that Brazil has structural and institutional racism. And also it's a kind of silent racism because Brazilians try to naturalize the situation and then not to talk about this. 
And on the contrary, we have this official image of the a very peaceful country, a very calm country, and eventually a melting pot, that it's not. Brazilians like to say that they are so tolerant, but numbers coming from 2018 show the opposite, how Brazilians are very much intolerant. The number shows intolerance in religion, intolerance about racial issues, intolerance if we think about gender issues. But in the book, I also talk about how colonial system created very concentrated powers that we call colonialism or also mandonism. It's this kind of idea that we all already have, no? that in Brazil, these very important landowners or even in the cities, they have this power, this big power. It's not just a political power, but it's economic power, moral power, educational power. So this is one of the bases. I also talk in the book about corruption that is not in the DNA of Brazilians, but we can explain historically to understand how this kind of roots, as you mentioned, uh, were created in the country. I also talk about patrimonialism that's very strong in Brazil. I use patrimonialism in Weber definitions, uh, that it's when you have the contaminations among public and private spheres. This is crystal clear now when you think about Jair Bolsonaro, how he tries to use the congressman, everything in order to perpetuate himself in power and also to protect his sons. So this is pure, crystal clear patrimonialism. The book also talks about inequality. When I started writing the book at the end of 2018, Brazil was the ninth more unequal country in the world. When I finished in April 2019, Brazil was the seventh more unequal country in the world. And I think it's worse now after the pandemic. I asked Lily how we are to understand the incumbent government in light of her discussion of authoritarianism. In other words, in what ways is this past manifested in the present? The army was officially created in Brazil after the Paraguay War. The Paraguay War happened during 1865 to 1870. This war is very important to understand the end of monarchy, but also to understand how popular monarchy was in Brazil. After the war, the army became very strong. What happened when Brazil became a republic in 1889? It was a, an internal coup d'etat because Deodoro da Fonseca, the first president, was a general. And from 1889 until 64, the army tried a lot of coup d'etat. I would count like 12. So 
when we had the dictatorship was a very violent one that kidnapped people, killed people, put in jail lots of people. The mythical narrative was that the army was there to protect us, to protect us against everything, communism, but also very degenerated customs, very degenerated values. The army delivered us a country with a terrible inflation, a country very disorganized, with a lot of corruption, but the official image was the opposite. So Bolsonaro always talks about his past in the army. And we know that he had a lot of problems in the army, no? because he tried to organize a rebellion inside the, the army and the consequence is that he had to leave the army. But even so, Jair Bolsonaro recreated a past, saying that in colonial times we were very happy, very organized, and the dictatorship was very organized, very good for the country. And the thing that interests me most is not what Jair Bolsonaro thinks, but what Jair Bolsonaro represents. That is your question. In the book, uh, I just talk about the Bolsonaro once because I think Bolsonaro is a symptom, not a cause. So it's very interesting to understand Jair Bolsonaro as a symptom as a symptom of this old Brazil. The people that used to think that the dictatorship was the best moment, was a very rich moment. It was a very noble moment. It wasn't. But Jair Bolsonaro represented this kind of people. In the book, the idea of using the past is to show how history is important to understand not our beautiful past, but our terrible past. <laughs> Besides enormous omissions and inertia in its response to the COVID-19 pandemic, the government of Jair Bolsonaro also actively supported sharing available vaccines between the public and the private health sectors. I asked Lily about the ways in which the pandemic deepened structural, social, economic and racial inequalities in Brazil. One thing that pandemics give us is a portraying black and white of our country. So unequal countries are going to become more unequal. You use the good example of vaccines. Let me give you other examples. Let us talk about education. In Brazil, we have a very complicated system because the best schools are private but the best universities are public. What's happening now? Private schools are suffering a lot, but kids are having classes like this, as we are talking, using a computer. But they are having classes. Is that perfect? It's not. But one can say that they are studying. What's happening in public schools? Kids are not having classes, not at all. Sometimes they have one, they have another, they receive some school texts, but they don't have the teachers to talk with them, to explain, to ask questions. Most of the time they do not have classes. So we have a whole generation that passed to another grade last year, but did not have classes. So in education, inequality, it's big, it's huge now. Let's talk about health system. 
The better hospitals in Brazil are private. Now, if we talk about 2021, a person that can pay or have a private insurance, health insurance, that can enter in good private hospitals, chances to die are not big, like 4%. Persons that entered in a public hospital with this crisis, hospitals are completely crowded. They have no space for more people suffering from COVID. The chances to die are 40%. So let us stay just in health and education. Brazil is not a poor country. It's a country of poor people that are suffering a lot in this pandemic years. In the book Lily recently co-authored with Eloisa Starling, A Bailarina da Morte, A Gripe Espanhola no Brasil, The Death Ballerina, The Spanish Flu in Brazil, they trace certain similarities in the ways authorities and the general population in Brazil reacted to the 1918 influenza pandemic and the COVID-19 pandemic. I asked Lily to share with us some of the parallels that they were able to draw between disinformation and mistrust then and today. In 1918, the Spanish flu was entering the country just in September. The first reaction, it's very much similar. Presidents of states, that was the name of governors at the time, in the first moment they said, no, 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 nothing is happening. Brazil is a tropical country. We don't have winter and nothing is going to happen. Uh, at that time, the Spanish flu entered in a boat, in some boats. One of them, De Merara, was the boat that entered first in Recife, then went to Salvador, then went to Rio, from Rio went to Sao Paulo, went to the south, went to the center of the country and to the north. That's a very, very sad story because in 1918, Manaus, the capital of Amazon, was where the Spanish flu killed lots of people. And again, we have the story of Manaus. Lily draws a striking and certainly tragic parallel between the devastating effects of the influenza pandemic and those of the COVID-19 in the Amazonian city of Manaus. Like in 1918, during the coronavirus pandemic, Manaus was hit hard, facing one of the highest infection and death rates in the country. In 1918, the Spanish flu entered from the ports. In 2020 and 2021, we know that COVID entered from the airports. You know? It's the elite that was in foreign countries and brought the COVID in 1918 and 2020 or 21, uh, we are not talking about democratic diseases. Now, in 1918, the Spanish flu killed the former slave population, the immigrants living in the towns in terrible situation. And now we can say that black people, they are dying more than white people in Brazil. Other similarities. In 1918, some people tried to advertise chloroquina in the newspapers all over the country. I can imagine that they made a lot of money, <laughs> but political and medical authorities did not encourage people to buy this kind of medicament. 
And I want to say that we have a kind of devolution. Why? Because at that time, one could find more solidarity that one can find nowadays. At that time, to give you an example, churches closed, but they opened their doors to receive people that got the Spanish flu. They helped a lot. You can see photographs and very elegant places <laughs> that they created hospitals to help people. The same happened in private clubs. At that time, in 1918, private clubs like Paulistano, Pinheiros, closed for the public, for the, the general public, but opened the doors to create hospitals, public hospitals. One cannot see this kind of initiatives nowadays in Brazil. We could see that at that time. So in my opinion, the situation is worse nowadays. Lily is using the term minoritized majorities, maiorias minorizadas, to refer to the lack of representativity of especially women and black people in politics and high-ranking positions more broadly. I ask Lily whether she finds that the current far-right populist government has contributed to further disempowering such social groups. She began by saying that while in the US, for example, African-American citizens represent a numerical minority, in Brazil, more than half of the population describes themselves as black or parda. So, in this case, we are not talking about a minority, if you think about numbers. If you think about the whole population of Brazil, we are talking about a majority. But this is a minority, a majority, no? because they are minorities in depiction, in presence. If you think about congressmen, if you think about doctors, if you think about lawyers, one can see how uh, the representation is completely disproportional. And women are majorities in Brazil. I think all over the world, no? Like in Brazil, it's 53% of the whole population. Even so, in the last election in 2018, women were minorities by far. We are walking backwards in Brazil at the moment. That's the reality. And Jair Bolsonaro, his sons, his three sons that act like emperors no, in Brazilia, and the ministers, they, they deal with this idea of uh, this problem with black people, with LGBTQ people, and women uh, like naive problems. They called me, me, me. <laughs> that, that's the idea of, oh, it's nothing. No, it's nothing. It's just naive things. It's not important at all. Lily mentioned the Palmares Cultura Foundation, a government institution working on black and quilombola cultural and educational initiatives. The foundation took its name from the Quilombo dos Palmares, the Black Republic of the Serra da Barriga in the current state of Alagoas. Like all Quilombos, Palmares began as a settlement where people escaping the condition of slavery and the colonial authorities of the time would seek refuge. Palmares is known, however, to have been the largest of them, numbering about 20,000 inhabitants in the 17th century. Black Quilombo communities today, Comunidades Negras Quilombolas, have their collective rights to land constitutionally recognized. 
Among other things, the Palmares Cultural Foundation is entrusted with the task of officially recognizing these communities scattered across Brazil in the thousands. This institution called Fundação Zumbi dos Palmares now has a new president. It's a black president, but he is much, very much against black issues. He says that's not important at all. We have a minister for the family, and she is very much against LGBTQ people. I always say that Jair Bolsonaro do not have to organize a coup d'etat. That's lots of work for him. Why? Because we Brazilians have a coup d'etat every day. <laughs> and the idea is like this. You can destabilize the country, not showing that you are doing exactly this. But that's the situation in Brazil. We have uh, a minister of the Meio Ambiente, of the environment, that is very much against the environment. <laughs> that is destroying Amazon, destroying the center of the country. So every minister we have, they are very much against the goal, the goal of the institution. So that's the idea of having a president, that he is a coup d'etat. Jair Bolsonaro is a coup d'etat, every day. <laughs> Finally, and returning to my initial question, I asked Lili, how can we imagine a process of uprooting authoritarianism from Brazilian society and politics? Brazilian civil society had shown that it's capable of acting against authoritarianism and against dictatorship. We have a president in love with this kind of idea. Civil society has to react. It's very difficult because we are experiencing this pandemic time, so we cannot be together in the streets uh, fighting and screaming against the government. And we know that Jair Bolsonaro is very much afraid of losing his popularity. Because he's like this, he's a populist, no? a populist that prefers to say lies than to say the truth. Because you know, if you say a lie, it's very easy because you go in the direction of what people want. So I think civil society has to organize in a very creative way in order to attack Jair Bolsonaro's government popularity. How? I think that citizenship is a thing that it's for everyone. <laughs> everyone has to act in your place, using your possibility. I am an historian, an anthropologist. My arm, I have just one, the arm of knowledge. But I am sure every Brazilian has other arms, other forms of fighting. And it's time to fight. I think we have to use our arms <laughs> to go public and talk against this kind of government, this kind of very conservative, dangerous government. It's just a question to find the power, you know, to find the strength and fight in a very democratic way. <laughs> this was an episode of Impact Dialogos. In this episode, I spoke with Lilia Moritz-Vartz about authoritarianism, pandemics in Brazil, and growing inequalities. Impact Dialogos 
is an original production that is part of the ERC-funded Pact, Populism and Conspiracy Theory Project at the University of Tübingen, Germany. It is written, produced and hosted by me, Katerina Hadzikidi. Sound design and mixing by Ignacio Albornoz Farinha. Special thanks to Steffi da Silva, Yul Ko and Michael Buter. Thank you for listening. See you next time.